Hey, how are you doing? Good, how are you? I'm doing great. Happy Monday. What's the highlight and low light of your Monday? Um, just working. It's raining. Uh, finally cooled off the weather here in Orlando a little bit. Oh, you're in Orlando too? Yeah. Is that where you are? Yeah, yeah. Wait, what, what temperature part? is it? It's 81. It was in the night. Yeah, it was in the 90s. It was like going to be high of 95 today, I think, or 97. It was going to be, but it, it won't now. 73 right now in Oviedo. Oh, because we've had a bunch of storms. Thank goodness. I know. I looked at the like long term weather and it said like yesterday and it said that it was going to start to cool off on Wednesday. But I guess the the coolness came early. Yeah. Well, and it'll get hot again. It, this is this is just rain related cooling. Oh, dang. Man, I can't wait for fall. Yeah. I'm, I I don't understand. I don't understand why I still live here because I don't like 90 degree <laughs> weather. Yep. What part of town are you in? I live uh, in Windermere. Uh, you can basically see the Magic Kingdom fireworks from my house. Okay. But yeah. My we're in... go ahead. Where my, where, where my you? daughter lives down there. Okay. Where are you? I'm in Oviedo. Got it. We're um we're about to move. Uh, my wife and I are buying a house in um, uh, it's kind of like between Celebration and Four Corners. So it's technically Celebration on the address, but if you were there you wouldn't think you were in celebration it doesn't look like celebration it's like right okay. outside of celebration but i'm so excited because uh we've been renting for like two and a half years yeah close to two and a half years and i've just been itching to get into a house and the market you know it's just been tough the real estate market i don't know do you have a house uh we're renting oh, okay gotcha yeah, yeah, I used to I, own a house. I bought one in 2013 and uh, kept it uh, until 2019 when I had to sell. And it just sucked because I sold right before everything went up in price. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, I don't know if we're going to buy again. I mean, I've I've owned houses before and it's fine. But there's there's something about knowing that if a major thing breaks, I'm not the one responsible for fixing it. Interesting. Okay. So that's just, that's not how you want to invest money. No. Well, no. at least not now. And I don't know in Florida, given, you know, what's happening with homeowners insurance companies and how they're leaving and it's getting harder to buy and that's prices true. are going up, you know, I'll, we'll move somewhere else if we want to own a house mm, Yeah, or yeah. we'll stay here and rent. Yeah. Um, how did we meet by the way, Eric? Are you, do you know James Carberry? I don't think so. Oh, I think okay. we I was met on LinkedIn, LinkedIn or something. We had a mutual connection with James, and I thought maybe that that we met through him or something. But no, I probably just reached out to you to 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 do the podcast. I think that was it. What's your business like? How how does your ghostwriting business work? Uh, I ghostwrite. Um, oh, Kyle Lacey is one of our mutuals, and Anna awesome. Goddard. Awesome. And uh, Ray Lau and so Ray Lau, I used to go to church with Ray back in okay. the day a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I, I guess you don't know James Carberry, but you're connected to him. He's one of my best friends. He runs a company called Sweetfish. Oh, you know Andy Storch? You might not know these people, but I know Andy Storch. Oh, okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, I think I, mean, I know uh, Sweetfish too. Oh, really? They do, do you know Sweetfish podcasting for sales uh tools right yeah it's not a bad description they uh they do they do b2b podcasting so uh it, it doesn't have to be a sales tool any any b2b business okay yeah. so i'm either thinking of Sweetfish or i'm thinking or there's another one called redfish bluefish that i'm also thinking of but they i've never heard of redfish bluefish um they do i i might be thinking of Sweetfish, but they do podcasting as a sales tool so you, kind of what you're doing you know if you wanted to get me to to hire you to write my children's book you would have me on your podcast that's james james okay. carberry 100 percent. he wrote the book on it content-based networking i used that strategy literally to do kids books like i would i i had a podcast called purpose-driven entrepreneur where i just 
and I just learned that my automation for this podcast is is mixed with my purpose driven automation. So you probably got an email that was like, "Hey, we're going to talk about your eulogy. We're not going to talk about your eulogy." <laughs> um, but uh, but I I ran a podcast called Purpose Driven Entrepreneur because I was doing content based networking for my kids' book ghostwriting business, and that's how I got. I mean, I got like forty clients out, off of that strategy. So that if you if you you know. It's a great strategy for getting clients. For this show, it's not as it's not quite the same thing because I'm not trying to turn you into a client of my business. This is mm-hmm. more like um, so I I have Dinosaur House and I have Stonecrest and Stonecrest is the um, it's everything but the ghostwriting. So through writing better, I'm building a community of ghostwriters and relationships with all these ghostwriters and hopefully an audience of ghostwriters. Because generally speaking, in my experience, ghostwriters only want to ghostwrite. They don't want to do cover design and laying out books and publishing yep. on KDP and all of that kind of stuff. Exactly. So since, since I already run a full service uh, kids book production company, I am very familiar with everything that you do with a book aside from just the writing. And there's just this bank of there's just so many ghostwriters out there that don't want to do all the other stuff. So I'm like, Hey, why don't you just, I'll be a referral partner. Uh, I'll give you 10% every time I, every time I close somebody you send my way, if you ever have a client and you just, you don't want to do all everything else, send it my way. So, so I do content-based networking in that way with this show, but it's not just content-based networking because I, I intend to grow an audience of ghostwriters by talking to ghostwriters. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hold on one second. Thought you're about to strip for me. Okay. I got cold in my house because of the rain and the AC was working great. And so it's uh my office is in my garage and it's warming up in here a little bit now. As you were taking off your shirt, I wanted to be like, no, 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 I'm not trying to grow that audience, Eric. <laughs> um okay well um thank you by the way for saying yes to doing this um wait hold on i was asking about your business how does your like what kind of ghostwriting do you do um i'll write just about anything um i've done business books and memoirs and i'm working on a true crime book right now uh, about a uh, a police officer who was killed in indianapolis in 2017 and how do you get the mo- majority of your clients? Do they come? Usually to you? referrals. Yeah, got it. And it, it's, are you paired up with a, um, like a, a scribe media type entity or are you totally freelance? Totally freelance. Got it. Got it. Who's doing all and, your book layout stuff? Um, I leave that up to the author. I, I'm it. the writer. They're the author. I leave it up to them. So I've had a few where they just don't do anything with the book, which Shoot, is unfortunate. Well, but I'm right here now, Eric. Now you know I exist. Yeah. It's called Stonecrest Books. I'll send I'll I'll send you some information about it. Just just in case you get more of those clients and you need somewhere that you could send them. Okay. And then um my own books, uh, I publish with um Four Horsemen Publications. Oh, who's and, that? Uh it's a local publisher, at least local to Central Florida, and it's number four, not F-O-U-R. Um, but uh, fourhorsemanpublications.com and Val Willis started that with a friend of hers from Tampa and they're up to, it's like five years old they're up to about 130 authors How cool they started that? out as erotica publishers just on oh, Kindle man. Okay. and now they cover all genres they have a business imprint and a children's imprint wow and they handle the whole thing oh yeah I see the, the children's stuff um that's very interesting. Um, yeah, they're like, so they're like a traditional publisher or a hybrid publisher? Uh, traditional. Got it. Very cool. And what kind of books do you write for them or like get published by them? Um, I've got a novel that I'm working on. Uh, they republished uh, my novel, my first novel. Hold on. Uh, republished my first novel this year and I have to write two more. Okay. And um, do you think you'll keep working with them after that? Or what, what do you think? Probably. Oh, I see you there now. Interesting. I have one traditionally published deal. Um, 
And uh, I probably won't do another one. I really enjoy being self-published. But I'm more, I'm like kind of entrepreneurial. I, from the beginning, I was like, because before I started my companies, I made a living on book sales, which I've now learned is like a crazy way to try to make a living. Um, but I did it through touring. So I was constantly uh, going elementary school to elementary school, performing uh. my kids' books. And I would sell a bunch of books each time I did a performance. And so then I learned, you know, soon enough learned, I was like, oh, I just have to constantly be in a new location and I'll just keep making money in book sales. And that's how I'll make a living. And then COVID hit and wiped out my ability to tour. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I was like looking at Scribe Media. You know who Scribe Media is, right? Maybe. Oh, okay. They're like the, they just imploded. Like yeah okay that's who i'm thinking of yeah okay so anyways i was looking at their business model and i was like hmm i wonder if entrepreneurs business owners would pay to be known as the kids book author of their niche and so i hit up six entrepreneurs and i was like hey what if you were the definitive kids book author for your category so like you do b2b podcasting james what if you wrote the kids book on podcasting what if you wrote the kids book on sales like that kind of stuff and um got a bunch of yeses and I was like, okay, there's something to this. And we're now three years in and we've done 40 of them. So that's cool. my, that's my, that's my main business. And then I started Stonecrest just because when Scribe imploded, there was just all these ghostwriters that needed to send our clients somewhere to get their books professionally done up and published. And I was like, all right, I'll do that. And yeah. uh, it's now, that's now become the main payer of the bills for us. Cool. Yeah, I talked to uh, uh, Scott. And I always forget Scott's name. He owns uh, a ghostwriting company in Winter Park. Kind of a okay. same scribed model. And he he talked to several of their executives when they left and figured out what happened was they were charging monthly payments for you know the cost of the book, and they charged like thirty thousand dollars. Yeah. And they would charge $3,000 a month for 10 months, but because the author was not responding quickly, you know, would miss meetings, wouldn't get uh, things back to them, they the book might take a year or more. Yeah. And so here's two, three, four months that the writer is working without getting paid. Yeah. Um, because they've paid off the fee. And so he switched to a subscription retainer model. Okay. And you pay $3,000 a month until you are done Yeah, uh, with a minimum. So it's at least 30. But if you're going to jack around and take two or three extra months, you're paying six or 9,000 extra dollars. Interesting. How do so, you charge people? Uh, right now, I've just been doing um, 50, 25, 25. Okay. 50% down, 25% when the first draft is delivered. 25% when the uh, uh, final draft is done. Ah, okay, gotcha. Hey, you're good. The, what we're recording right now is just my pre-interview. It's for me to get to know you a little bit and to figure out what our episode is going to be about. Okay. Um, and then- I'm going to go grab a drink though real quick. I got, it's yeah, in the other room. Yeah. Okay, so Eric, right, uh, so, oh yeah, sorry. So the basics of how this works is I'm going to pre-interview you right now. And uh, mm -hmm. something that you say on this pre-interview is going to form the main uh, idea of our episode. And then it's not likely that we'll be able to have enough time to record the episode on the same call. So what most of my guests do is we just do another call where, it's, uh, it, where we do the episode. And the episode length is like 20 to 25 minutes. So, but the purpose of this call is because if I just went right into recording you, you'd probably have great things to say, but there's a chance that A, you'd say things that we've already had said on the show. And B, it would probably take me a little while to figure out like, oh, where's the, where's the juicy content that you have to share? And so I've just found that I'll, the episodes will perform better if I do it this way. Okay. 
So I'm going to hit you with about 10 uh, topic discovery questions. They're questions that are designed to get unique points of view out of you. And if it's going to feel a little funny because I just want you to answer them from your gut. And I'm going to be taking notes as you talk. Something that you say is going to trigger me to be like, oh, that could be a really interesting episode. But if, if I don't, if you deliver something that you think is really good and I don't say that, don't take it as a sign that you're, you don't have really good stuff to say. Uh, th there's been a lot of things that have already been said on the show. So I'm also listening for like what's new. Cool? Okay, no problem. Awesome. Yeah. And the only reason I'm recording is in case I can't take notes fast enough. Um, so my first question I'm going to ask you with, I'm going to ask you uh, is a nice, easy one. And that is, what is a recent epiphany that you've had about your own writing process or your own writing business? Like a recent epiphany you've had. Um, I think the biggest one is that I've realized I've been getting better as I have focused more on mechanics, uh, you know, the sentence structure, choosing the best words, trying to make the writing as strong as it can be, rather than just focusing on new ideas or getting things out quickly. Um, I want to make sure I use the best words I possibly can. That's been a habit that I've I've kind of gone after for years. Uh, by doing things like eliminating adverbs and you know picking the strongest verbs uh, or using more descriptive nouns to describe a situation um, or focusing on just adding more information to a scene and taking a, a process or a brief interaction between two characters that might have taken two sentences and instead turning it into a few hundred words. And that actually makes my writing a lot better. And when you answered that, are you specifically thinking about writing fiction or do you mean that in general? In general, uh, I'm working on a, uh, a true crime book right now. And I worked on one particular scene that, you know, the media had summarized it in just a few sentences, and I turned it into a 600 word, uh, almost 800 word description of what happened. Okay. Uh, okay. And so, you know, getting into a lot of detail, but it made it that much more powerful. Was this a personal project or was this for a client? This is for a client. Got it. Okay. Cool. Um, what is something that you would tell new ghostwriters? that it has taken you way too long to figure out? Details are critical. When you, when you talk to somebody and you're, you're recording everything and they, they remember something like, you know, their first car, uh, get them to tell you what their first car was. Or if they were on a date and they spilled a drink on themselves, it's not enough to just say they spilled a drink on themselves. What was the drink? You know, was it a glass of wine? What what vintage? What you know? What was the brand? And et cetera, et cetera. Or um, you know, what was your your first uh, significant other's name? And how long did you date? And you know, things like that. So get as many details as you can and put those in your story because they make the story more real to your reader. And so it took me. It took me several years to learn that, but I've uh, I've known that and I've practiced that more in the last few years. Why do you think that's so important that that's the thing that you would tell ghostwriters? It's because you're you're taking something that, you know, when you think of when your family tells you a story. Uh, and they say, well, I remember this one time I was riding bikes with my friend and, you know, we went to throw rocks in the stream. Right. And, and we fell in and got wet and our moms got mad. Great. If, if that is part of a story, you know, that's 20 words right there. That's not much to go on. And it's not very interesting. Sure. You fell on the river and your mom got mad at you, but why, what happened? What was the temperature? What, you know, make it significant. Did somebody nearly die? Why did they nearly die? Just not enough to say they nearly died. It could be that they froze to death or that, you know, it had rained a lot. And so the rivers were flooding. And and so you need to you need to focus on the details that make the story interesting. Um, 
or exciting or emotional or sad or scary or you know whatever but all the details add to that they they take this this generic statement that could be made over dinner and turn it into something that people really want to read now how do you filter all those details cuz i i would imagine if you're focused on in your interviews you get to get as many details as you can you're probably getting so much more than you're actually using. So then how do you process what you get um, to make sure that you include what's important and not what's not important? Or like, how do you decide that? Uh, it's, it's almost a gut feel. I just look at what are the things that I would want to know? Um, you know, if somebody's describing their first date, I want to know where they went and maybe I want to know what they had for dinner. Uh, but I don't need to know, you know, what was the side dish? And, you know, I don't need to know that, but I, I want to know what they had for dinner. What did their date have for dinner? Um, those things might be important, but not every fine, you know, every minuscule detail uh, is not going to be critical. And so I just, it really is a gut feel um, as that I, as a reader, what do I want to know about? And then that affects what I, as a writer, put in there. Yeah. What is something that clients of yours struggle to understand, but if they would just get it, it would absolutely change their book? Hmm. I think the big thing is they, they need to understand that their stuff is interesting. It's not even that the clients don't understand it. It's the people who don't want to be clients don't understand everybody's got an interesting story and um you know it doesn't matter who you are you don't have to be a rich and successful executive uh or a business owner who took an idea to a billion dollar business individuals who might not ever otherwise be featured in a book they have interesting stories and and i don't know if you can see it one of these books up here uh, is um, just a collection of interviews by Studs Terkel, who was a journalist in Chicago in the uh, mid, early to mid 20th century. And he built his whole career on interviewing just normal everyday people. He might interview a waitress at a diner uh, one day and then a truck driver and then, you know, the guy who's building houses and then the woman who's, you know, living at home, raising her kids. But those people all have interesting stories, and his strength was finding out what is that interesting thing. And it's that it's that one story that, like I was talking about earlier, when, when I was a kid, we fell in the river, me and my friend, and that might be the interesting story that he pulled out of that person. So it's not necessarily what's life like a truck driver uh, or what's life as a truck driver, what's life as a waitress, but rather what's that one thing that happened to you that people would actually want to know about. And so I think the thing that people don't get is, is that they have those stories that they are yeah. worth telling. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Because the counter argument to that is, well, I, of course I think from a business context. So like, uh, I like if I were to write a business book or a business memoir, um, there's so many things that I don't think that I'd be inclined to focus on because I don't see how they would help me with my business, but they are interesting things about my life. Mm -hmm. um, but then even as I say that, I'm like, what am I talking about? Like, for example, I think that, so I used to play Peter Pan at Walt Disney World. I think the majority of people would find it interesting to be like, what was it like playing Peter Pan? Oh, yeah. Um, but I, I, I have a friend who was Donald Duck. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd be inclined to not include that. But then as I think about it, I'm like, I'm a kid's book author. Why, why would I not include uh, that <clears throat> part of my life? Yeah. Well, and, and to me, there's a difference between business books and memoirs. Uh, business books, you know, I've written business books. Uh, you know, yeah. I've written several on social media and, and personal branding. And <clears throat> it's not about me. Those books are not about me at all. But that's the way I can make money is, is selling the books or getting speaking engagements. But the memoir would be about me and would be about my experience. And I'm not going to make money off of that. I'm going to have maybe, you know, 10, 12 people in my life who would be interested in reading that. But 
for me, I think the whole point of memoir, and it is it is an ego thing. You know, anybody who wants to write a memoir, it is all about the ego, not being egotistical, but it's about our our just wanting to be known. <clears throat> we yeah. don't know our fourth generation behind us. Yeah, like your great grandmother. Do you know who she was? I'll be doing you know an episode what? on this exact topic. I had a pre-interview yesterday. And she was talking about how she was cleaning out the attic of her great of no, she was cleaning out the attic of her grandparents. It was either her grandparents or her great grandparents. It might have been her great grandparents, but she found a box of letters that they had written back and forth to each other when they were falling in love. And she wished that they had written a memoir so that she could fill in the gaps of the questions because they had just passed away. So she's cleaning out their attic. And so we're going to talk, we're going to do an episode about how essentially like a memoir is because you're lucky if there are going to be generations after you that wish that you wrote a memoir, like the most likely scenarios that you'll be completely forgotten. The next best scenario is that there'll be people that wish they knew you. Mm -hmm. um, so you write a memoir for that reason. Um, well, I think that's if, an interesting case. If nothing else, maybe that will be of interest to historians maybe not necessarily you as a person, but, you know, some sociologist or some, um, you know, pop culture historian wants to know what life was like back in the 40s. They can read Studs Terkel's book, you know, and, and there that gives them all kinds of clues. And so your memoir may end up being just illuminating to a future generation that, you know, they don't know who you are. They're not related, but you give insights into what life was like during your youth interesting hmm. um <clears throat> what do you think separates a good book from a great book the kind of book that people tell others they have to read um i think a lot of it comes down to the mechanics of the language hmm. to me to me a, a well-written book and a good story can be two different things. And so, uh, you know, I've, uh, like I said earlier, I've made it my focus to write well, and I hope I have a good story. Like I hope my novel is a good story. I hope this true crime book I'm working on is a good story. I really want it to be a good story, but I think the thing that, that people are going to remember because it's the thing I can control the best is the quality of the language. You know, that's one thing about Kurt Vonnegut um, you know, I'm a big fan of Kurt Vonnegut, you know, he's from Indianapolis too, but, um, but he just had such a way with language and his style was so interesting that people regard his stuff as great literature, even though what it really was was science fiction. And so you get all these literary people who kind of turn up their nose as genre fiction. They just, you know, that's that's low brow to them and they don't want to have anything to do with it. But they all revere Kurt Vonnegut. He's writing science fiction books, but he's using such beautiful language that they think he's one of them when actually he's one of the sci-fi writers. Nice. So so I think that's what separates the great books. It's a differentiated point of view. Um, what's something related to success as a writer that you don't see a lot of people in the writing community talking about? I don't know. Well, let me ask um, you this question. What do you think success as a writer is? I think being able to call yourself a writer, being comfortable calling yourself a writer, because that's something that a lot of writers struggle with. Um, I was I was giving a presentation uh, at the Writers of Central Florida. We had a uh, uh, we have a monthly workshop, which I want to invite you to. By the way, it's on the fourth oh, Wednesday. So that, next that sounds super fun. Yeah, next Wednesday at Winter Park Library at seven p.m. Um, but, uh, she had written a book for the Orange County government. What's it called, by the way? Sorry. What's the, okay. uh, Orlando word lab. And if you look up writers of central Florida or thereabouts on Facebook and on meetup, 
Uh, join both those. You'll get notifications about our events. Do I have to pay? Nope. It's all free. Everything about it is free. Okay. I'll mark um, my calendar. Is it every so, Wednesday? Uh, every fourth Wednesday at the library. Every second Wednesday, we are at Stardust Video and Coffee up in Winter Park at 7 p.m. Okay. And that's and an you, open do you mic. Go, do you go both times? Yes. Yeah, I, awesome. lead the, I lead the workshop. And then okay. I, uh, I always read at the open mic. Okay, interesting. Um, I would love to come. Yeah, uh, you if should. I can't make Absolutely. it this week. I still would love to come. Yeah, next week. Okay, don't yeah, come yeah, this yeah. week. I, not... I didn't mean this Wednesday. <laughs> I, I was thinking. I was as I said this week. I was thinking next week. Yep. Okay. So, um, anyway, so I was I was speaking at, at the workshop, and I when I ever give whenever I give a talk, I always like to ask who here does not believe they're a writer. And I had this, this woman raise her hand and I said, you wrote a book. That's an accomplishment. That's, that makes you a writer. There's, there should be no question because that's sort of the final barrier that a lot of people place. It's like, well, once I write, you know, 50,000 words then I'll be a writer. Or once I publish something on a blog or once I publish something in a magazine and some people don't call themselves that until they write a book. And this woman had written a book and still didn't think she could call herself a writer. And I always tell people, once you start writing, you're a writer. There's no, there's no accomplishment you have to achieve before you can call yourself this. You know, if you start running uh, for exercise, you're a runner. If you go to work unclogging people's sinks and replacing their their faucets, you're a plumber. You don't you don't not call yourself a plumber once you start doing that. Every other profession. When you start teaching children, you're a teacher. There's not, you know, you don't have to wait until your oldest kid graduates high school before you can call yourself a teacher. And so I think the thing, to me, a successful writer is, of course, somebody who gets published, but but also somebody who can claim that title without looking over their shoulder, afraid somebody's going to correct them. Yeah, I think because writing is a creative career, and just as much as it is a uh, like a technical skill. Um, it's going to be fraught with imposter syndrome. Um, yeah, it's going to be totally fraught with imposter syndrome. Same thing for artists. Like I was a, I was interested in being an illustrator before I was interested in being a writer. And same thing is true for illustrators. It's like, you don't want to call yourself an artist because if there's not enough people that think your art is good, then you don't want to call yourself an artist. But then the reality is, as long as you have that mindset, there's never going to be enough people that call your art good. Like you're never going to arrive at that point. Exactly. Um, and, but, but, but the interesting flip side to that, uh, that I, that I like, there's this guy named Alex Ramosi that says, don't build confidence, build evidence. And I think that's really good. Like when you lack confidence, don't try to force yourself to be confident, build evidence. Evidence breeds confidence. Yep. So there's a case to be made for the person that's like, hey, I, I'm going to sure find artist, writer, whatever. The reality is I'm trying to grow a body of evidence to support this thing that I'm trying to do. Yeah. So I have imposter syndrome still. Um, and in 2016, I was the spring, uh, the spring 2016 writer in residence at the Jack Kerouac house. Okay. Which is a pretty good accomplishment. You know, it's, it's here in Orlando in College Park. And, you know, if you get in there, it's there are like three or four hundred people who apply each year. And so it's a big deal if you get in. Yeah. Well, the only thing it did for me was fire up my imposter syndrome even worse. How and so? I thought uh, I thought I tricked them. OK, they, yeah, they selected I mean, that's, me. That's what imposter syndrome is when you yep. trick them. <clears throat> but they they picked me based on the sample I gave them and not my actual body of work, because if they saw the kind of stuff that I usually write, they would have said no. And so I worried that they were going to show up one day and knock on the door and say, we made a mistake, you have to go. And so I worked really hard on writing my book, that book. Um, so if they did What's show up, book? I can't see it. It's uh, called Mackinac Island Nation. Okay. That's What's my first novel. It's a humor novel. About okay. if Mackinac Island were forced to secede from the United States. Where's Mackinac Island? It's uh in Michigan. So if you okay. if you 
people say, you know, the Michigan, Michigan hand. Yeah. Yep, right there. It's okay. right there, it. right where uh, Lake Superior and Lake Michigan meet. Okay. So anyway, I thought if they show up and want to throw me out, I at least have the manuscript to say, no, look, I've been doing it. It's like you said, not confidence, but evidence. And so I thought, here's evidence that I actually deserve to be here. And they never mm. came. And uh, and they they told me, no, no, you were supposed to be there. We we only based it on your sample for one thing, but the sample was great. So you got in. But yeah. I, I still couldn't shake that feeling. And some days I'm the president of the organization now. And some days I still feel like I tricked them. Well, I also think that life is a series of quote unquote tricking people and then living up to the thing. So it's like you you get people convinced that you're the thing, then you live up to the thing. Then you try to convince people that you're more of the thing, then you live up to more of the thing. Yep, and exactly. It's just a constant climbing that way. Like for me as a kid's book author, the first way that I got in front of kids was I started, I literally just had my book printed. I didn't even get it published. I just had it printed. I started knocking on elementary school doors and saying, hey, I'm kids book author, Timmy Bauer. Can I come read to your kids? And about and half the time people would sh shut the door and be like, who's this weird guy that wants to read to our kids? But then the other half, they'd be like, well, how about you meet the media specialist? And I'd meet the media specialist and she'd flip through my book and she'd say, okay, you can come read the book to, to our kids. And I would go and I'd read the book to the kids and the kids would like it. And sure enough, my imposter syndrome, I'm like, they only like it because I... I don't know, because I, I read it to them like it's not like it's good on its own, um, but it would it would produce more uh, like teachers telling other teachers like, hey, you should have this author come read to your kids. And I, I really did trick people into thinking I was a kid's book author. But in order to trick people into being thinking that I'm a kid's book author, I had to become enough of a kid's book author to get the ruse across, which made me a kid's book author. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It goes back to what I was saying, you know, being comfortable calling yourself a writer. Well, you had to become the thing to call yourself a thing. Yeah. Mm. Um, oh, okay. Uh, this is a question I ask every single potential, like in every pre-interview, I ask this question. I haven't, uh, I'm just going to ask the question. How does an unknown author sell thousands of books in a short period of time? Uh, social media. You start branding yourself on social media when you start writing your book, not when it's done. But as you, soon as you start writing it, get a couple of social networks, uh, start building up content for it and start building your network. <clears throat> Have real conversations with people. Don't just blast out messages of, hey, buy my book, buy my book, but actually talk to people, create friendships, get to know them. So that when your book is finally released, they know you enough and they are your friend. Even if they're just an e-friend, they know you enough that they want to support you and buy your book. And is this coming from, is this the voice of experience talking or uh, yep. ha like, have you executed this strategy yourself? I wrote a whole book about it and then sold it doing exactly that. Okay. And can you give me some numbers? I mean, it's okay if the numbers are modest. I just, I want to get a, um, a bearing. I, I did. Uh, Kyle Lacey, the, the, one of the guys we're connected with, he and I wrote Branding Yourself in 2010. Uh, I helped him write Twitter Marketing for Dummies in 2009. And so since we were both writing about Twitter marketing, we started doing all this stuff on Twitter because it was brand new. And, uh, and so then when we wrote Branding Yourself, we thought we are really going to have to use social media to sell the book. And so we started telling people on Twitter and on uh, LinkedIn at the time, because I think, I think Facebook was not open to the general public yet. Um, okay. But we just started saying, hey, this is what we're doing. And we started asking people for advice that uh, they would want to put in the book, like, you know, Facebook advice in 140 characters or fewer and LinkedIn advice in 140 characters or fewer. And then we would put those people in there and say, Hey, Randy Clark said you should do this thing on LinkedIn. How many uh, people know, did you put in your book? Dozens. Dozens. Okay. Um, because we knew if nothing else, and this was definitely a cheat on our part. We knew that if nothing else, somebody who had a tweet in the book would buy the book 
so they could have the book they were mentioned in. Of course. And so we tried to diversify that audience that way. And then we interviewed a lot of different people. Like I interviewed uh, Mignon Fogarty, who's Grammar Girl, and uh, Qasem Rashid, who's a well-known Muslim activist. And, you know, we would interview them and do case studies about them. And so that helped as well. But it all Would you say that you were an media. unknown author at the time of you yes. making this book? Yes. Okay. But I was well-known on social media. You and became well enough, known, or you were already well known. I was already well known. Okay. <clears throat> so you had already because, built up a following on social media before you even started making this book. Yes. Okay. Because what I was in 07 and 08. Okay. And uh and so I'm I've got like 18,000 followers. On which Twitter. is not yeah, which is not many compared to other people, but these are people who followed me because they liked what I did. Not because yeah. I use some kind of cheating yo-yo following unfollowing strategy of getting, right, right, right. you know, of tricking people into following me. Yeah. There are plenty of writers who have two hundred and fifty thousand Twitter followers, and their only messages are ever "buy my book, buy my book," which is a terrible strategy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've got eighteen thousand people who want to follow me and want to see what I have, and if I post something, they share it and they react to it and they engage with it. Yeah. Yeah. How long did it take you to, uh, to grow? Like, when did you start getting serious about growing? I'm guessing this is Twitter. Yeah. Right away. Uh, you know, I started using it in December of 07. Okay. And then just found it to be a fun tool to use. How long did it take you to get to say 10,000 followers? A couple of years. A couple of years. Okay. So for the relatively unknown author, it's like spend a couple of years growing uh, 10,000 following while you're making your book. You and, can do uh, it faster than I did. Okay. Uh, you could do it, um, you know, in a matter of months, but given what the, you know, the state of Twitter now, I'm not calling it the other name, um, but given the state of Twitter now, uh, I would look at uh, TikTok and Instagram. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, I don't know if threads is going to be a thing or I don't know if blue sky is going to be a thing. Um but find something where you can just share content. Like yeah. I've even started sharing content on TikTok. Uh, yeah. My wife had to talk me into that. Okay. But, um, but you know, this is, I think this is going to be one of the new important social networks for building a brand and not just sharing fun videos, but for actually being a content creator looking to make money at the thing they do. Yeah. Whether How's it's an artist or a follow? musician. Um I don't know. I get about 250 views per video per day. Uh-huh. Now I'm curious. I started focusing on TikTok for a little while. I hired a TikTok coach and um, she was awesome. And I got my, uh, I got my TikTok up to 3,500 followers and I had a couple of posts go viral Um but then I stopped focusing on TikTok because I wanted to focus on YouTube. Yeah, I'm only at 156. So gotcha. I get more views on my videos than I have followers. Yeah, that's normal. That's especially normal for TikTok. Yeah. It's great for discoverability. I, I, I guess that I guess if you're if you're gonna outline a strategy, one strategy is focus on social medias that are great for discoverability because you're going to have a faster time growing that way. But I would also focus on social medias where it's going to be easy for you to get plugged into and grow in a community. So mm-hmm. like what Facebook is great for like oh, yeah. face, Facebook has groups and there are some writing groups that are just, there's so many people in those groups and um, it's literally just writers helping writers. And so you, you know, if, if it's like primarily gathering advice as a hack to grow relationships that could then be interested in your book, you probably want to get into a place. Writers or readers. Asking for advice. Yeah. But like if you're a romance writer, join a romance writers group, uh, writers or readers, and they will read your book. Yeah. Um, you know, they're not writing in a vacuum. They don't only read one book a year. And then the mm-hmm. other thing I tell people is. Uh, find a few of those writers 
uh, like find other romance writers and start recommending each other to your own networks because yeah. your readers don't just stop at one book a year. You know? yeah. And uh, depending on the length of the book that you write, you know, somebody will knock out a book in a weekend and they look for the next book. Well, here's my favorite author recommending a book that I they think I would like. I'll read that one. Yep. Um, what do you think is controversial in the world of writing? Uh, traditional publishing versus self-publishing is one. Yeah. Uh, the use of AI uh, is another. Yep. Um, I think the use of... I think writing about people with backgrounds that are not your own uh -huh. uh, is, is always risky. And so the use of sensitivity readers. Uh, and so I think that's always, <clears throat> always very controversial. And I think a lot of, a lot of writers have the attitude of you may not write about anybody else who is not, who does not share your background and will just jump all over you for doing it but yeah. there are where do you stand on this uh i think that's kind of bullshit <laughs> i love that I, opinion if you have a character like i have in my novel i have a character who is black and gay the whole point of his being in the book is not to be black and gay it's not about his his experience as a gay man or as a black man that's just who he is. Yeah. And so I uh, I made sure that there was nothing in there that could be risky or could get me in trouble. But, you know, I I think that if, if I'm not allowed to write about a character who is black or is gay, then I don't think any any black writer should be able to write a white character as a villain. Yeah. Um, There's one and, thing. I think it's one thing to say you shouldn't write about experiences that you haven't personally uh uh i see what i don't want to say is you shouldn't write about experiences that you haven't had because that's not exactly what i mean but like for example if i write about climbing a mountain i should have climbed a mountain. i should at least have seen them i should have yeah. least have talked to somebody who's climbed a mountain. like i shouldn't write about something that i have no interface with but that's but, but I think it's too far of a stretch to be like, if you want to write about professional mountain climbing, you have to be a professional mountain climber. If you want to write about the experience of a black person in the hood, you have to be a black person in the hood. Well, or you could talk to them and get yep. an idea from them of what their experience is like, and then try to write as authentically as you can based on the conversations that you've had. Like, why is that not allowed? <laughs> Yeah. Well, and then that's where sensitivity readers come in. If you're going to do that, you should write uh, or you should have sensitivity readers read your stuff and they say, yeah, that's accurate or no, that's not how that goes at all. You don't yeah. want to you don't want your book to be out there and then you get hammered for being as inauthentic as you possibly could have been about it. Yeah. Um, where so, do you stand on the use of AI? Uh, I I. I'm mixed. I don't think it should be used to write books. Uh, I think it will be. <clears throat> I think there are unscrupulous people who will create books with that. And there was just a story in the news recently about a woman whose name was put on AI written books. And I think that we will eventually get to the point, and this is what, what the, the SAG and the Writers Guild are striking for, is the use of AI in creating these movies and yeah. these TV shows. And I think what we will see is that will go ahead, but that there will be not a backlash, but a resurgence of human confirmed creation. So like, if do you, do you listen to vinyl records at all? No. Vinyl records have gotten huge. In fact, vinyl records last year outsold CDs for the first time since the 80s. Interesting. See, that actually makes sense to me because to the people that want to have physical media, uh, like a record just feels like there's more like muchness to it than mm -hmm. a CD. And there are people who want paper books for the same reason. Well, I think we're going to see uh, maybe in five or six years, people want human books. 
they uh-huh. they want human written books they and it has to be verified and i don't know what that will look like but it has to be verified that a human wrote it and maybe there's going to be some kind of software or some organization that confirms that the humans wrote these things yeah there's already software that will tell you if something is ai written so what if there's now a stamp of approval that says mm-hmm. you know human written and yeah. i think that we will see the growth of people wanting human created content where do you stand on trad versus self chat versus what sorry trad traditional publishing versus self publishing oh um i have done both i like the sense of just cachet and accomplishment that comes from traditional publishing i like that the uh, royalties are bigger with self-publishing because you're going to do the same amount of work either way. You're going to, you're going to go on social media. You're going to grow your network. You're going to promote your book. You're going to go do the book tours and the signings and the, and give the talks and blah, blah, blah. And whether you are traditionally published or self-published, you have to do that same amount of work, but the traditional publishers did more of your setup work, the cover design, the typography, the editing, and so you're going to pay for that, uh, but you're not, so you're not going to make as much money. But with self-publishing, uh, you run the risk of it not being as good because you didn't have experts looking at those elements of design and typography and editing. Um, but you make more money. I think because I have developed the expertise, uh, there, I, like I know how to lay out a book. I know how to design a cover. I know how to do the visual, uh, the interior visual design. Um, the only benefit to trad for me is the cachet. And for me, I, my opinion on this is you just need to do it one time to get the cachet. Uh, like why waste more money doing it twice when one time a Simon & Schuster published Kids Book Author on that for life. Like I don't mm-hmm. have to do it a second time. And so whatever cachet I was going to get out of it, I got. Yeah. Unless uh, the difference would be like uh, there's a distribution network that comes with, say, Scholastic. Like if you're a kid's book author and you do a Scholastic book, you you have the built-in distribution of there is a there are two book fairs a year that Scholastic does every single year in every single elementary school all across America. And if you write a good book for Scholastic, they're going to put it on that shelf for all of those schools. Yep. There's a lot of value in that. Um, so that'd probably be my exception. It's like if you think about a situation like that. Oh, yeah. Well, and I've got a friend who, uh, you know, another social media book guy uh, has had one or two New York Times bestsellers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Anytime he publishes... Well, and and there is that, but but it's the same thing as as you said. He is always the New York Times bestselling author now, whether the Ah, book sold. he's still New York Times bestseller. Jay Bear always. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, What's a commonly held belief uh, in uh, writing, or the business of writing, or the craft of writing that you passionately disagree with, and the the better uh, the better answers to this question are ones where the belief is common among writers. So it's a commonly held belief among writers that you passionately disagree with. Hmm. I think the big one that that I complain about, and this is so this will be personal to me. Um, is the idea, especially among the MFAs, the the Masters of Fine Arts, although I think it means something else too, uh, (laughs) but they are very down on genre fiction, but most people tend to be down on humor, which is what I write. And that's what that thing is. That was a humor novel. I've written newspaper humor columns for 28 years. How can somebody be down on humor? I I don't know. because Well, I think the, the thought is... It was funny, therefore it must have been fun, 
therefore it wasn't very hard. And, <clears throat> and so when I, when I got in at the Kerouac house, you know, we go through uh, submissions and we have a committee that goes through these three or 400 submissions every year. <clears throat> and I heard about this later from, uh, from the guy who was then the VP. He said that the, the guy who put my book through for consideration um, went to Jeff and said, I really like this one, but I can't put it through. Can I, it's funny. And we're not allowed to do humor, are we? And Jeff said, no, you do whatever. If it's good, you just put it through. Uh, there's no rule about humor. And I heard that story and I realized that, yeah, there, there always has been a bias against humor. Um, people just, they don't think it's real or they don't think it's, it's not things we're supposed to like, you know, like we're supposed to like classical music and we're supposed to like the opera. Um but I don't know that many people who actually like opera. Yeah. You know, they're out there. But I, you know, I think the seats a lot of times are filled up with people who say we are supposed to like opera. Yeah. Um, and so you're supposed to not like humor because it's not take. serious. When it comes to kids' books, most people most people have so many misconceptions about, in my opinion, misconceptions about what makes a kid's book good. And there's this bias against humor, specifically the kinds of humor that kids love. Like oh, yeah. poop. Put the word poop in your kid's book. Put the word booty in your kid's book. If you want kids to beg to have that book read, include those words in your book. Uh, but people are like, no, I want my book to be meaningful and magical. And I don't want to, I don't want to add that, you know, I don't want to add gross. Uh, potty humor to my kids book it's like okay well do you want your kids book to be loved by children because if you do you should probably put what kids love in your book yeah that's why captain underpants was so successful it's just and, but it was also just why it was loved so saying underpants yeah but it was also why it was so hated i mean it was yep. boycotted it was taken off of shelves because it, I, there were two le there was one legitimate complaint against it and then there was the body po potty humor complaint against it and i think uh, I mean, maybe I'll feel differently when I'm a parent, uh, but I just think that, like, like even if I'm trying to get a meaningful message across, uh, you can you can package that mess. You want to package it. You want to put it in packaging. Sorry, my next meeting is jumping into this uh. call. <laughs> you want to pack. You want to put put that in the packaging that uh, that you know kids are going to love, and that packaging oftentimes is potty humor, yeah. booty humor. Yeah uh gross out uh stuff like that and uh uh yeah uh she we, that, that'd be our second meeting that's a client of mine um okay. yeah she'll be fine she 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 knows that i had a call right before hers um anyways i, I that's just my opinion about it. now obviously the sensitivity of your subject like for example that client she's writing a book about grief. i'm not going to give her the same uh like yeah let's get booty humor in your grief book um, you know, unless unless there's a way that it could work, uh, you know, then then maybe. But uh, but generally speaking, there's the, there's so many wrong biases when it comes to making kids. Anyway, sorry, I'm yammering on about that, it. No, no problem. This, but you're um, right. Humor humor is kind of looked down on, and and yet I think some of the best writers and the most memorable writers, the ones that we still talk about. Uh, were humor writers, you know, PG yep. Woodhouse, uh, Douglas Adams with the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You see that influence everywhere. Hitchhiker's Guide mm. is such an enjoyable read. Mm -hmm. Like, as far as like older books, you know, books that came out a while ago, um, that's one of the more enjoyable ones. Because yep. for me, I just blitzed through that book because it was so fun. Have you read all of them? No, just, just the first one. Should There's I read more. all of them? Yes, keep going. Okay. There were there were five books in the trilogy. Okay. And oh, wait, then, I read the restaurant at the end of the universe. Yep. And then yep. um Life, the Universe and Everything. Uh So Long and Thanks for All the Fish. Uh I can't remember oh, what number okay. five was. And then there was a guy who did like number six, and it was not as good. Okay. He he worked off of Douglas Adams's notes and uh it was much darker and less okay. silly gotcha. um 
PG Woodhouse, I highly recommend. Uh, it's spelled W-O-D-E House, Woodhouse, but okay. it's Woodhouse. He's still regarded as one of the best humorists uh, yeah. ever come out of Britain. Yeah. Um, um, Eric, I'm about... out of time. Okay. Uh, but I have loved talking to you. Uh, honestly, you've been one of my most enjoyable pre-interviews. Specifically oh, good. Thank because you. every single question I've asked you, you've had like a great, like, and it makes sense. I mean, you you literally like talk about writing constantly, um, but you you've had like a, like a real take, like an actionable, like thoughtful answer for every one of my pre interview questions. Would you be against? Because I've done this before on my other podcast, The Literacy Advocate. If I had a really good pre interview, I would publish it, and I'd be like, oh, sure. "Hey, this was just a pre interview, but I thought it was so good that I thought it was worth publishing." Um, yeah, no, I'd be ha- that'd be great. I'd be happy to. Okay, awesome. And I still think it would be great to do an episode on like the take that you gave about um, the mechanics. Uh, this is what I wrote. Having a good story is not the same thing as writing well. I think that would be an interesting episode to focus on specifically you talking about there's a difference between having a good story and like being really good at the mechanics of writing, word choice and whatnot. And you seem to have a strong point of view around like it's the mechanics that make a book enjoyable to read, um, which I think is interesting because it's a differentiated point of view. I don't know a lot of people would agree. Okay, so sure. It'd be, be cool to do a full episode on that if you're down for it. Yeah, no, that'd be great. I'd love to. Okay, awesome. Well, I'm going to talk to you uh, off this call about when we could get together to record that. Um, but I definitely want to post this pre-interview uh, as an episode. Just say like, hey, this was a pre-interview, but it was really good um and i'd love to go to the uh orlando thing or the Please do. Uh, east orlando thing yeah writers of central florida or thereabouts it's walk fought okay. w-o-c-f-o-t look us up on facebook and on meetup and you'll find out when our events are okay so. all right i'll see you soon all right thanks a lot bye bye